Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Our next guest is Marla Cott. We're going to talk about branding, but first we want her to uh, brand herself and tell us a little bit about herself personally uh, before we get into our topic. Hi. Thank you for uh, having uh, me on. My name's Marla Cott, and I'm actually the CEO of Imprint Plus, a company that sells uh, customized, personalized name badges and signage systems. We have over 35,000 customers in 75 countries, and we are very proud uh, owners, women-owned business, of a company that's been around for over 32 years. Well, that's a long time. But how, then the first question I ask, how did you get into this business? You know, through sort of the back door, I was actually an angel investor. So not a lot of women are angel investors. So all of you women out there, uh, think again. I invested $20,000 in this business, and it turned out it was an old high school friend, and it turned out that at one point uh, we turned the business around and built it into a $10 to $12 million business. Is she... Did you step in because there were problems or because you thought you you could help her uh, with your skills? You know, I'm by profession. I'm a chartered accountant or CPA. And initially, she asked me to come in and just give her some advice. I then stepped in because I had management skills. And, to you know, she was an amazing and is still, we're still partners today, an amazing salesperson, Ellen Flanders. And she wanted to take that role, and I come in as CEO. Also because with her as uh, the president at that time managing the business, it ended up in trouble with uh, just cash flow and areas, as every small business has in the startup phase. So I walked into problems, and then we made it right. Well, um, because our audience is 59% owners and or presidents, uh, tell us a little bit about the problems there. I know they were then, but uh, and, and how you solved them before we get into anything else. Cause, uh, we Always interesting. 
It's always interesting to hear the pro- what happened was really when you're not, uh, you know, today, especially today, at that time, okay, we're going back about 10, 12 years, but today you really have to know how to run a business to run it. When you start it, it's okay, but then when it starts to go, you have to have the skills, the management skills to run a company. What's so interesting is I had, you know, I signed at the bank and how many people signed at the bank? I basically wasn't paying attention. Ellen was running it. I was selling at that time, so our roles were reversed. And um, we ended up running a bank debt of over half a million dollars. I think it was closer to 700000 Uh That was okay, except we were only doing $2 million in volume. And the bank called the loan. And you could just imagine getting that call. It's like a disaster. And then day, uh, we, I moved to, uh, we called in a consultant. I moved and started running the business, moved from Montreal to Vancouver. I moved right across the country, started running the company. And uh, we reversed our roles and became very clear about who was going to do what. If you think about it, I was a chartered accountant or a chartered public accountant. I should have paid more attention to signing at the bank and also to what skills each of us as partners had. Okay. So uh, you're here to talk about branding. Um, my, my first question is, what is branding to you? You know, today branding is so uh, personal because almost everybody has their own personal brand, but really branding to me is the promise you make to your customers, really communicating your unique proposition. You know, we work with so many amazing top-notch brands, our um, business, and each one does have a very special quality, and that is branding, knowing what that special quality is. I'm sitting here. uh, So what's the special uh, quality that you have and uh, how did you arrive at it, and uh, what advice would you give uh, uh, other people? You know, we were very, we were looked at products that had been around for so many years. I mean, name badges is one. Everybody, when you look around you, everybody wears name badges. When you go to your doctor, when you go to a hospital, when you go to a dentist, if you go to a travel agency, going into a bookstore, I mean, all retail, all service industries. And we took a different take on it and made a do-it-yourself name badge kit that allowed anyone to make a professional-style name badge right at their computer. So we did really something to make, you know, to, to get away from that engraved badge where you send out engraving. Mm-hmm. and really enabled that. It's called the Mighty Badge. That's our brand. And you can get it. I mean, obviously, uh, it was unique in that it comes with software and all the components to make a badge right on site. Well, um, I have to tell you a story. Uh, 30 years ago, I was invited to, to address a group of HR people down in Houston, Texas, and I, I said to them, have you ever thought of uh, giving your salespeople 
different grades. Um, a really good salesperson on the floor gets a gold, um, uh, a silver for the next level, and bronze for those that haven't reached that level. And um, I got such pushback on that. Uh, to this day, it still frightens me because, uh, uh, you know, I was in effect saying that, that you're grading your salespeople, and they they disagreed with that. And I, I've been fascinated by uh, name badges ever since. Uh, would you? Uh, what do you think of that idea? And, and if you I don't like, I think it's, it's a great idea. Uh, to be honest, I think it's a. You know, I think today we are so used to. You know, you hear about online shopping every minute, and we're so used to um, doing things at home. If you actually get up, you go to a store or you go to a hotel, you really expect top-notch service and part of the service is making the people who are working with you like the people who greet you who are there to provide you with the service accountable and responsible for the service they provide and I actually think your grading system or what you're really doing it's not even grading it's giving people a motivation to achieve I think you know to be a gold you know or a platinum I mean, I think that is really a very, I think it's very motivational today. But that idea was, I think, before its time. Um, you know, it I may be- have been. No, please, you go ahead. I was just going to say, it's a really, it's really a good idea because today, I mean, we definitely value service. And I think it really was ahead of its time where everything today is so transparent and what you do and, you know, how you present yourself, so critical. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, uh, on this program uh, and bef- before you came on, we had a, a gentleman who uh, says uh, that um, our expectation of customer service has actually gone down in the last 20 years because uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, Customer service hasn't gotten, even though we we talk about it a lot, hasn't really permeated enough of the uh, sales per, uh, personnel, and that uh, uh, getting good service is more unusual than usual. Uh, and I remember uh, um, when my mother was dying, um, she arranged, and I hate to, to say this on the air. But for uh, a woman at Macy's to keep sending me my underwear, even after she died, and uh, and four, uh, four years after she died, I was still getting the underwear at the right time uh, until I, it stopped. And why did it stop? Because she had died. But um, uh, that's unusual above and beyond. But um, uh, uh, I love the idea that I can address someone by... Do you believe it's better to just have the first name or the whole name on a on a badge? You know, I think it depends on what uh, industry it is, really. I mean, if you look at, you know, one of the uh, companies you've mentioned, Macy's, I mean, that speaks to the brand, really, that they really consider their employees ambassadors of their brand and how seriously they take that. But if you were going to, so they could have first names or last names. 
people have titles, but if you go into the medical profession, you would want not only the name first and last, but also what they do. But it's interesting, 75% of all people care about knowing the person's name. 75% in a survey. That's amazing. Yes. You know? And they're more loyal, and they take it, they are more loyal to whatever business or um, company it is, and they really, it makes a difference to them. Well, I'm you know? sure it does. Please keep, continue. I don't mean to interrupt you. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, that, what is also, um, I think it's interesting. We try so hard to get customer attention, customer loyalty, and people want to connect. And connecting is knowing someone's name. That's the first, you know, that's how you introduce. So I think it's really, but I loved your story of, I loved your story of getting the underwear. Oh, I think oh, that speaks, I think that speaks to an amazing brand. Yes, yes. But I have, I have to ask you another question. I noticed as I've gotten older and my eyesight has gotten worse, um, uh, sometimes badges are uh, so small you can't read them from far. Do, do you believe in uh, making uh, the print bigger? Uh, uh, what should be the ideal size, uh, point size or whatever, for a uh, uh, a badge? It should definitely be readable. It has to be readable from a distance. So a, a typical badge size is one by three, and the print ends up framed in that size. But we're seeing badge sizes trending to larger, absolutely. I mean, people actually like the e-card size as well, which is quite a bit bigger, or, you know, 1.5 by three. It's much bigger than it was. And there's no question that people want to see see it easily. I'm a new customer. I come to you and I say, uh, I'm starting a, um, a, a new store. What, uh, what are the questions I should be asking you in, in designing my, my nameplate? You know, the first thing is, obviously, do you want a logo? What type of business it is? Um, you can easily have an image, a logo, a name, a name and title. What is the personality of your brand? Is it formal? Is it informal and casual? Is it funky? You know, the bad should be a real representation of the communication. And I think that it is brand-driven, absolutely. So you you think having a logo on a name name badge uh, is important. I think it's great because if the employee leaves the store, you're still, you know, they're still an ambassador for or wherever they work. If they're still wearing the name badge, they're still an ambassador for that business. And so it's always nice to have that association. I mean, logos are beautiful. What and is colorful. The- Please, go on. And colorful? That's right. I mean, people spend so much time developing a logo. So it certainly has a place on a badge. Well, uh, what's the best color for uh, for a badge? 
uh, I've been imagining as we're talking some of the uh, badges I've seen, and the ones that seem to stand out are those framed in red. Um, uh, yellow happens to be my favorite color, so it's not that it's my favorite color. But I, uh, as we were talking, I was thinking of the badges I've seen over the last three or four days. But what is a bright color better than? Uh, uh, I know that it varies, but uh, should it be a bright color? Should it? Uh, what? What's? What about color? Color makes a difference. And it also is one brand driven, but just so, I mean, red is very vibrant and exciting, you know, and it's a power color. So it's good that you like it because it's a power color. Uh, blue, very trustworthy. You can trust blue. Green, obviously it's the color of recycling, but it's also the color of wealth. So each color has a different connotation to it, and we feel differently about it. Yellow is very happy. So yellow is fun. So it's great that that's your favorite color. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm learning a lot today. You know, as with everything, there are certain uh, uh, things you should know about. What what other things should I know uh, buying... uh, deciding on a nameplate? You know, I think the most important thing is that people really care. So it's really, it's it's something that, you know, whatever you choose, and look, there are different sizes. We sell 10 different sizes. We have uh, name badge kits for as few as two people or as many as 200,000. But I think whatever you're choosing you should know that it will bring more success to your brand, which is sort of amazing that such a simple little thing can do that. And people will remember your name. People will remember you. So that, I think, is what we're all trying to do is be remembered, be recognized, and connect. Uh, What else would you say to our audience about name badges or or anything else that you'd like to say to our audience? I would say that today branding and how you present yourself, your first impression, really matters more than it used to. I mean, I think your uh, guest previously was right. The service, the expectation of service historically, strong. We were getting, you know, we, we... a different kind of service today I think it's going right back to the point where everyone wants to be serviced well and properly and that makes the difference in success and I think it does Uh, I think you know statistically and by surveys we run the younger people 18 to uh, 35 really not so young I mean young you know adults they really really care about knowing person, the uh, technical abilities, the uh, relationship of who connects with them, and that is the customer base today. And I just think you have to be, you know, you have to be aware of it, that there is an expectation of connecting, and the name badge makes it simpler, easier, and just makes you more successful. 
If people want to uh, talk to you or your company, how do they do it? www.themightybadge.com. Uh, our product is actually distributed across the country at Office Depot, Staples, and hosts of ad specialty uh, companies. Any ad specialty company that does logoed product can definitely access our product through. Uh, so the Mighty Badge would be where I would look. www.themightybadge.com. Let me ask one last question. We're into the holiday party time. Do you think it's um, a company has a, uh, a a holiday party? Do you think special badges on occasions like that help uh, f- foster? Because you don't know every, usually you don't know everybody in the company, and, and should they be funny, funky? Uh, what's your thoughts on that? I would make them fun. I think that there's definitely, you know, I think holiday parties uh, are should be fun. And once again, it's uh, you don't know everyone. You're 100% right. Like, what a great opportunity to get to know someone by know and at least know their name. Because especially if you're supposed to know their name, I mean, I know for myself how embarrassing it is when you meet someone you know well and you just can't place them. Hmm. So, what an opportunity! But make it fun. You know, you can. I mean, that's. You could do. You could have any kind of uh, design and graphic and picture. You know, holiday parties should be special. Yeah. Uh, I have one more question. As you were talking, um, I had a discussion a, a couple of weeks ago at, at a show. Should the badge be on the left shoulder or the right shoulder? I've uh, to me, uh, I like it on the right shoulder because I can see it better. But uh, what's the better way of doing it? Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I can tell you that people that there's dispute. This is a disputed. <laughs> what is silly thing for a dispute? But I'm with you. I like it on the right, but many many people like it on the left because most people are right-handed. When they shake your hand, they're going to be looking at the badge on the left side. Uh, Marla Cott, thank you so much for being on the program today. Uh, I've learned a lot. I hope our audience did. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope everyone has a wonderful season. Uh, And I hope you have a great holiday, too, and we'll get you back uh, in the new year to talk more. Okay, thank you. Whether organizations are large or small, the leaders of those enterprises have a difficult job. They need to create a culture that leads to great organizations. We have with us today Scott Deming. He's written a book, and he's been a a speaker about this subject. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you, Don. Thanks for having me. Well, as we ask all our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into the topic. All right. Well, uh, I've spent my life in uh, the corporate world. Uh, I I owned and operated a national advertising agency for over 20 years. Uh, I've sat on several boards. I've been part of uh, a few different roll-ups and uh, conversions and uh, it's, I've just been involved in business for, since uh, right out of college. I sold the agency about 11 years ago, and I kind of embarked on this new uh, this new career of uh, speaking, training, and writing 
and uh, and I speak about 80 to 100 times a year uh, for organizations, uh, big and small, all over the world. And I speak on leadership, emotional brand building, innovation, extreme customer service, and uh, you know it's it, it's kind of a a unique <laughs> a unique journey is the more and more I get involved with leadership of different organizations, the more I'm learning uh, of what folks should be doing and not be doing. And so that led to my second book, uh, Powered by Purpose, which I guess we're going to chat about today. But uh, um, my first book, The Brand Who Cried Wolf, was a book to help folks in every area of business uh, understand the difference between branding, sustainable brand building, and marketing, because I'm, I'm a marketing guy. I came from that marketing background. So that was the first book. The second book, Powered by Purpose, is a really a truly a leadership book, uh, but it's for leaders of all sizes, whether you're just leading a sales team or a giant organization or a small independently owned retail uh, shop. It's a book to help uh, leaders better understand how to create a, a, a culture of purpose and how to adhere to your core values, surround yourself with folks who share your values, not aren't afraid to challenge them or give you a better idea of how to do something, but just you know, surround yourself with people who do truly share your values and share your, your, in, your passion for that purpose, that mission in your organization. So that's the book, Powered by Purpose. And, uh, um, you know, again, it's just a, a great leadership book for leaders of, of organizations or teams of all sizes. Well, that's a great plug for your book, so let's go into detail on it. Uh, but uh, you mentioned earlier something about an emotional leadership or emotional... Well, emotional emotional brand emotional brand building. Uh, what, I, what I talk about is every person in every organization is a brand. So I'm trying to get folks to understand that when, if you have an emotional brand, if you are communicating with your employees, with your customers on a very authentic and emotional level where everything you do and say impacts them on a very personal and a very meaningful level, you create this kind of an emotional connection with folks around you. And and then what happens is your brand becomes more of a feeling and less of just a recollection of what you sell and how to get a hold of you. So emotional brand building is the sustainable brand building process. I mean, you can, when I had the ad agency, we actually, the reason I got into this, here's the beginning of the trajectory of my career. Um, I created a division within our organization, our agency, where we trained our clients from leaders down to salespeople on how to effectively relationally sell and communicate and interact. Because what we would do as an agency, we'd have a client who would spend millions of dollars with us, and we would put this wonderful, clever campaign together. And if they weren't worried about service and culture and, and all of that good stuff, we were driving customers into a flawed service. Are you following me? In other words, we, they, they weren't they – weren't at all interested in working at all on the culture because they thought that the advertising was the magic bullet. And as long as they were spending money with us and we were driving people into their place of business, game over. So that's what kind of got me onto this path now of helping to close that circle, close that loop, and help leaders to better understand that this is really, you know what, don't even spend a penny on marketing if you're not willing to spend any time at all on creating a culture where when people become part of it, they want to stay, they buy into it, they believe in it. So that's, well, how do you that's create, really emotional branding. Well, how do you how, how do you do it? <clears throat> you, you say you, you should do it, but how do you do it? Well, the first thing you, you do is you, as a leader, 
you, uh, you inspire those around you by giving them the freedom to speak their mind, for one thing. One of the things I talk about in, in the book is, uh, you know, a great leader is a leader that doesn't have a whole lot of ego. The problem with a lot of organizations, the reason they don't have this culture, this emotional culture, this culture where people buy into it is because you have leadership where they don't listen, they want to drill all their ideas down, it's got to be all about them and all about their process to the point where everybody else around them just kind of feels like they're, you know, they really don't have the right or the opportunity to speak their mind. So to create this, this emotional kind of a culture, you have to have an organization where as a leader, you're not afraid to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and better than you in various ways, and you let them know that. So you get yourself surrounded by people. You say, look, I may own the company or I may run the company or I may run this division, but I need you. you we brought, brought you in because you're great, you're bright, you're smart. We need your ideas. We need your input. And then what you do is you encourage your managers to drill that same kind of behavior down to the folks beneath them. That's kind of how you start creating a culture where people buy into it. They want to be part of it by letting people, by making people understand that, you know, they are an integral part of the growth of this company. So allow them to speak their minds, encourage them to do so, and communicate with people on an authentic level. And that's kind of what I mean by, you know, the emotional brand. People crave authenticity. So if you're talking with me, if you're my manager, or if I'm your customer, and I'm buying from you, and you make everything you're saying relevant to me, personal, and about me, I become emotionally connected with you. I become emotionally attached because I know you're in this for me, not for you. I'll give you a good example. I was talking to a, a farmer uh, out in the West Coast a couple of weeks ago, and I was doing some research for a client that I, had spoke, that I, I just got done speaking for. And it's a big agricultural fertilizer crop protection company. And he was telling me the reason he's been with his, the sales people in this industry are called crop advisors. He said, the reason I am with this guy and I will never leave him is because he cares more about my crops than I do. That's emotionally engaging with a customer, truly letting them know that you're in it for them, not for you. Well, that's sound advice. Um, but, you know, and I've, uh, I've dealt with a lot of egotistical le leaders in large corporations <laughs> and small, and um, uh, what many of them uh, have in common is their total uh, disregard of what you just said. Um, well, uh, I, 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 under I understand what you're saying, and that's, you know, it's almost like, Don, you, you've heard people uh, in, in business say you can't, you can't please everybody. I mean, sometimes you know you have to know when to walk away from a deal because it's just not going to be a good deal no matter how much money's involved you know it's not going to end up well for either one of you not there are leaders out there that it's all about them they're protecting their position they're protecting their salary they're protecting their stock options you know you've got especially you just you said leaders of big corporations when you have a ceo of a publicly traded company this ceo has a lot of pressure on him or her to keep every quarter to the point where shareholders are happy, Wall Street's reporting the right things. So a lot of times they're actually driven by the wrong things. They make decisions 
that they would otherwise not make because they have to make a report look good at the end of the quarter. So I, you know, I think a lot of times it is ego and it is a lack of regard for others, but I also think a lot of times they, they cave. And, and, that's, and again, that's one of the things that I talk about in the book is you, if you truly believe in something, you have a set of core values and you know what your purpose is, you know what the mission of this organization is, you're going to be challenged every day. If your values are that strong, if you're that sturdy of a person, you'll stick to your values even in the face of ma- major challenge. And, and some of the challenges are, holy cow, this is a huge opportunity with a lot of money on a table, but this is not what I would do as a man of integrity. What would you do in that position? As a leader of integrity and of values, you have to make those decisions. Well, I'm a... Lot of, uh, uh, I'm a post-World War II generation, uh, a lot okay. older than a, a lot of our... And what I've noticed over the years is an erosion in what you say. Uh, I had an incident when I was, uh, in 1976 where um, uh, uh, I did something that... Um, uh, I promised something that was going to cost the, the company a lot of money. And the president said to me, we made a promise. That's enough for me. We will honor it. Uh, and I have, uh, over the years, I've always um, uh, looked up to that man for doing it. Um, we didn't even have a written contract. We had just made a promise. And uh, But over the years, I've seen an erosion in that uh, feeling of uh, ethical behavior in, in America today would you care to comment on that well i think that you're very correct in saying so i I also you know we're actually hardwired for things like empathy and and compassion i mean this is just this is part of our brain this is the way we were created but i think what's happening today and you're seeing a lot of this I, i actually talk about the fact that we are evolving away from the very things that we were at the very beginning that made us the pure good people that we should be. We evolve away from these things, and I think leaders are evolving away from, or as you said, eroding from some of the ethics and the, and the, the principles and the behaviors that you used to see years ago because of the fact that competition is just that much stiffer, margins are that much smaller, pressure is that much greater from customers and and wall street and the media and technology is to the extent now where you know people are just they don't want to interact with human beings anymore because service is so poor that the majority of the people who are online now buying online those folks just simply do not want to walk into a store and have to deal with a customer service agent so i think what you said is very accurate i think a lot of it has to do with the age we live in the, the amount of people we have to deal with, the technology that we're trying to work with. The, the fa- I read an article a year and a half ago, and I think it was in the New York Times. It said, customer service in America is at an all-time low. And in fact, it's so poor, and this is the article, listen to this, it's so poor that consumers are recalibrating their expectations. We are literally lowering the bar for ourselves because we know how horrible it is out there no matter where we go and what we buy. So I think a lot of that stems from the leadership, the culture that the leaders are creating within their own organizations. You know, they're making it all about the bottom line. You know, so, so are their employees. 
No loyalty to the employees. Loyalties have no um, uh, the employees have no loyalty to the leaders. I, I think you know that's part of it. You know, just kind of commenting on on your comment. I think you're very accurate. Well, you know, it's, it's a very interesting. Um, my generation. I'm 71. Mm-hmm. My generation. Uh, um, you know, a handshake. You walked away, and that was the deal. And then, yep. You know. You, in this generation, um, it, it seems, uh, and it's uh, my contemporaries, uh, you know, agree with me. And uh, if you get someone fifty or older, they kind of say that. But fifty or under, um, uh, I think that's the dividing line. Um, well, I'm fifty-six, uh, and I can and I can understand what you're saying. Uh, and in fact, in my first book, I write about the difference between an experience and a service. And, Diana, you're 71. You remember TV Repairman and The Milkman and going down to the local grocery store, hardware store. Everybody knew everybody, and people treated people like people. I don't even like to use the word service anymore because it doesn't mean what it used to mean. It just doesn't. I mean, they've attached the word service to everything. Customer service counter in a box store or an airport, and you see people screaming at each other. You could be served a summons. That's sweet, <laughs> you know. I mean, it just doesn't mean it doesn't mean what it used to mean. So I agree with you. I think that there's a there's a, just a big difference. Number one, in expectations, and because expectations are so low now, people feel that they can just deliver the minimum. That goes from everybody, from a person working in a retail environment to the leader of a giant multinational organization. Well. Um, I saw an interesting Dilbert um, uh, cartoon that said uh, a woman talking to uh, Dilbert, your success diminishes me. Uh, I I was struck by it. I just saw it this week. What did it say? I I missed that. What did it say again? The woman, the the, uh, fellow, your success diminishes me. Oh, (laughs) yep. That's exactly, that's kind of what I was saying earlier, where leaders are afraid to surround themselves with people who are, who are smarter than them, you know, because it diminishes them. But, yes. you know, that's, that's exactly the opposite of what it should be. You know, if people yes. know that, if people know that they can lift other people up, and you know what, don't be afraid to give people credit. That's the problem with a lot of leaders, too. They don't give enough people in an organization the credit they deserve because they want the credit. So that, that cartoon is spot on. Well, um, let's we could talk about this subject all day, but let's go on to some of your other points in your book. Okay. Well, um, you know, some of the other things I talk about really are, uh, uh, you know, based on creating this culture. Uh, you you had mentioned to me earlier this uh, decision fatigue, and I will talk about this. All this means is that. You know, so many, so many times you get in a situation where you have to work 10, 12, 14, 16 hours in a day. But what happens is that when we get tired, we're making decisions that are erroneous. I mean, we are, there was a study that showed that judges presiding over parole hearings would give 70% of the, of the parolees, they'd, they'd grant them parole in the morning. In the afternoon, they gave less than 10% parole because they just they didn't 
they didn't have the right frame of mind. The decision fatigue also talks about too many choices. When you give your customers and you give your employees and you give everybody around you too many choices, we actually get paralyzed by the number of choices. So we have to keep things simple. That's one of the other items I talk about in my book, keeping things simple, keeping things focused, keeping things consistent. Uh, another another part of this whole uh, uh, you know leadership culture is creating dialogue. But here's the most important part as a great leader. When I say create dialogue, I don't mean just stand there in a room in a meeting and start talking. One of the problems a lot of leaders have is they don't listen. I am doing. I'm, well, it's true. They they just they'll pretend they're li- they pretend they're listening, but they're just not. I'm doing a consulting program right now with a, a very large company. And I spent two weeks interviewing the majority of the, of the team members. The most common thread, the most common comment was this. And I'm not going to use his name, and I'm not going to tell you the name of the company, because he's, he's a very good man, and he, and he actually listened to me, and we're putting a training program together to help management and everybody else. But here was the most common comment. He doesn't listen. He'll come into my office. He'll ask me, what do you think is the best way of doing this? And when I tell him, he goes, yep, that's pretty good. And then we turn around and we do it his way anyway. He pretends to listen. He pretends to listen just because he's kind of pandering to the employees. But the employees now recognize it. And what he's done is he's actually diminished morale because very talented people, and in fact, one of his most talented young ladies just recently quit. And he called me up and he said, what am I going to do to keep her? And I said, I, you know what, I remember her in, in the interview. She just tried for the past four years to truly make an impact on this company. You didn't give her the chance. So as a, as a leader, you have to listen, and you have to allow people to make contributions. If I feel like I'm in a position where I cannot use my talents, I'm not going to stay. I'm just not. So, you know, recognize that. Recognize that as a leader you have to have ears, not just lips. We we had a uh, individual uh, on the program in October and uh, running a very large company and uh, uh, the same thing happened and two people came in and said if you don't change we're going to we're going to uh, leave and it happened to be his son and daughter uh, oh. <laughs> and that that was the only way he finally got realized that he he had to change. I did a uh, th- this is pretty funny I did a. Uh, a cruise a few years ago, and, uh, and this is for a, a, a big food company, and they had a bunch of their retailers uh, on the ship, their customers. So this is a food manufacturer, a bunch of their customers, and I was their keynote speaker. It was an Alaskan cruise. So we stop in Sitka. Everybody gets off, and this is where I, I depart. I'm heading back to Seattle, and I'm in this restaurant, and a couple waved me over, and they said, hey, Scott, come on over and join us for a beer. So I sit at their table, and uh, they were in the, in the presentation. They said, boy, I really love, love your presentation. And now this is a married couple who owns this small retail company. So this guy is now telling me how he can't keep good people. He goes, I'm telling you, the younger people, they simply do not want to listen. They don't want to work. He said, no matter how much you give them, how much you, and he kept going on and on about how nobody will stick around his company for very long. So he said, I'm going to get another beer. Would you like one? Sure. He leaves. She grabs my forearm. She says, before he gets back, I need to tell you something. She said, the, the problem is him. She said, we just lost our son and daughter-in-law. 
The same thing you just said. We just lost our son and daughter-in-law because he won't listen to anything anybody has to say. She said he's wonderful at numbers. He's wonderful at operations. He is the worst people person in the world. And I said, well, you better tell him. She goes, believe me, I've tried. She said he owns the company. It's got to be done his way. Now, you know what? He's dead. He's dead in the water. I mean, there's no way he's going to continue growing that company if he's never going to let anybody else, you know, give input or make a decision. So, yeah, that's a real problem. Well, that's a, surprisingly uh, in our surveys and in what we get across the, our desk, uh, that is one of the major problems um, smaller companies have. They, uh, the entrepreneur has grown it. And the other interesting thing that's happened, it's starting, whereas women used to be much more flexible and uh, and uh, listen more, we're finding in the last couple of years, we've been at this now 15 years, that uh, women are becoming more autocratic. Uh, I, I, I've always ascribed them more to men than to women because they're more uh, flexible. But have you seen that trend at all? You know, um I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want it to sound like I'm making a, a comment based on, on sex. I've not seen so much that they've been more autocratic. I, I, I do see uh, some women that I deal with in leadership positions um, are, how do I say this? They, they, they seem to be a little firmer in their decisions and in their points, because I think, you know, they're fighting, they're fighting for something that men haven't really ever had to fight for. And a lot of women don't get the respect they deserve, even when they're in a leadership position. So I think the environment around them, those kind of outside uh, the triggers, are causing them to maybe act a little differently than they otherwise would. So I don't know. I don't know. I can't say that I've experienced it as much as I experienced, as I just said, women in leadership positions being a little firmer and, and you know, I'm not going to call it paranoid, just a little more, a little more, maybe it's a healthy paranoia that people aren't going to doubt them because they're not a man. And, and I say that with all due respect because I've dealt with some uh, women in leadership positions who are just the best, absolutely the best. So I'm saying this with all due respect. I think that they're just trying very hard to command the respect that they deserve. So uh, maybe that's part of it, Don. Well, that's probably a, a way of looking at it. Scott, the name of your book again? Powered by Purpose. Yeah, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or on my website, scottdeming.com. Uh, it's, on Amazon, you can get it on a, in paperback and in Kindle. Scott, uh, uh, to, to sum up, uh, what, what would be the two or three things that you'd like uh, our audience uh, to take away from this pro program that you uh, want to say? The floor is yours. I would, you know what, Don? I, I'm kind of on a mission, and, and honestly, and I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not joking. I'm not making light of this. I'm on a mission, and the book was inspired by a tragedy, and, and uh, I won't get into it, but it was, and. And, and it kind of springboarded off of that. But my mission is this. I want people to do the right thing, especially when you're in a leadership position. People in a leadership position have such amazing influence, power of influence, power of impact, 
power to change, but too many leaders do not take the opportunity that is given to them and do the right thing with it. They're focused on the bottom line. They're focused on the profit. Look, I'm a businessman. You've got to make a, a bottom line. You've got to make a profit. But they're so focused on the money that they're not taking advantage of the position they're in to truly affect change and to impact those around them. So that's my, that's my bottom line. If you are in a position of leadership, think about what you can do who you can impact, how you can create change, how you can make the world around you a better place. Take the power you have, the opportunity you're given, and do the right thing. That's my basic mission today. That's it. I, I want leaders to just do the right thing. <laughs> I have to introduce you to a, a man who that was his mantra his entire career. And uh, uh, I've, I've seldom... I uh, I heard it from him, uh, and I, I haven't heard it. Uh, I haven't spoken to him in about a year. I haven't heard it from him uh, till I heard it from you here today. I happen yeah. to agree wholeheartedly with that. And sometime, you know, what profoundly affected me, as I said, was that incident years ago when it cost the company money. It was a public company, but he said, our word is our bond, and that's what we do. Um, it's well, interesting to... I love that. I mean, I do love that. No, I love that. I just, I I don't think, I don't think enough leaders use that as a mantra anymore. I I think it's wonderful. Well, the interesting thing is this company was noted for it, uh, for this, um, uh, for almost a hundred years, well, at least uh, 70 years. When, um, when the new generation of leaders came in, that uh, mantra went out the uh, out the window, and in the thirty odd years since, that company has almost crashed. It's a very yeah, interesting. Well, uh, when you take, I've you know, when when a comp- when a leader take when a leader takes the focus off of off of the right thing, off of like I said earlier, authenticity, service to others, doing the right thing. When they start moving away from that. You may make some money for a little while, but you're eventually going to crash and burn. I don't care who you are and how much money you make. You can't, you can't sustain because people don't want to be a part of that. You know, and I, and I'm, today, look, look at, just look at the culture in general. Look at people in general. I mean, anything goes. Anything goes anymore. So I think, you know, because of the fact that Outside of business, people are just kind of doing their own thing, and as long as I'm happy, I don't care anymore. As long as I'm making my money, I don't care about the team. I love free agency. I don't care if we're going to win the Super Bowl this year. I'm gone next year because my agent's going to make me more money. That's just kind of how people are today, and I think that leaders are seeing that, and they're going, you know what? Nobody cares if we're going to tell the truth or not tell the truth. Let's just do what we have to do to make that money. But I think there are a lot of people out there who still do care because you know, look at the backlash from uh, GM when they didn't report. Wasn't it GM when they didn't report the the uh, right? You know, the the, the safety recalls. Right. Well, you know, everybody's going look. They're putting profit above safety for God's sake. So, you know, it's it's. I think there are still people out there who care, who are good. I heard the funniest thing yesterday. I was on a plane and I was sitting next to a guy and we're having this discussion, and he goes, Scott, I be, I believe basically all people are good. He said, I just can't bring it out of some of them. <laughs> so he said, maybe somebody else can. I just can't. So, you know, it's a bit of a joke, but. 
Well, I think it's very accurate. I've been a reporter yep. for over 50 years, and I've, uh, never, I, I believe in that as well. But, and I, I am perpetually surprised and dismayed when that happens, uh, when I see th- things like you, you describe happening. And uh, um, But yeah, uh, uh, all in all, I'm still uh, uh, optimistic for the future. I am too. I am too. Uh, you you have to be, you know. I mean, you just you have to you have to look at it as uh, you know what. There are some challenges out there, but people are basically good. The world's good. It's great to be alive, and we're just going to try to make it a better place. Well, I think that's a perfect point to end our, our talk. And thank you so much for coming today. Oh, thank you, Don. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, maybe we can hook up again one day. Oh, very definitely in the new year. Have a great uh, holiday. You too, Don. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Our next guest is Gary Cardone. He's president of eConsumer Services, and uh, his company sent a very interesting email across the de- my desk today, and I, I had to have on the pro- him on the program because uh, he, he said, amongst other things, they said fi- there was uh, five... 5.8% return that were not that would be classified as fraudulent returns which we're going to ask him about but first we ask all our guests to tell a little bit about themselves personally before we get into anything else Gary welcome to the program oh thank you very much and hello to all your merchant audience well uh, Gary tell us a little bit about yourself you're a CEO but what I, what did you do prior to this? And tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I'm a. Uh, I helped build a Fortune 500 company called Dynagy. It was a, a commodity business in electricity and natural gas. And I went around the world helping the governments to reform the way energy trades between the big, you know, Exxon's of the world and the consumer. And we're trying to drive prices down so that consumers had a better deal. And then in 2007, a very bright lady introduced me to the I retired, and a uh, very bright lady introduced me to e-commerce, the Internet. And we began drawing a lot of parallels, in particular for merchants, of how the Internet would become a commoditization effect, uh, basically where everything in the value chain between merchant and consumer would trade as a commodity, giving small merchants an unbelievable opportunity to fight and and compete with the big super brands. So we built this business because there is a a whole set of issues that are twisted a little bit against the merchant in the way consumers buy things online, and then they are able to use the chargeback process call their bank, file a dispute against the merchant instead of returning the goods or calling the merchant. Most merchants that we deal with, and we've met tens of thousands of them, they really are trying to do a good job. And if consumers call them and ask for a refund, most guys will really work with them. But what they can't deal with is selling something two months later. And we're going to see this this year. You know, you're going to see online sales have exploded and you're going to see a lot of refunds and a lot of chargebacks come January and February. So the numbers that all the Wall Street analysts are predicting for 
year in, they may be correct, but they're going to get revised uh, come January and February when people overspend or have buyer's remorse. And through in the Internet, they can call their banks and do things that you would never, that would never occur in a store like a Walmart or a Walgreens that has a big brand name. Does that, does that can, help you out? Well, that's the start. But what can? What do you mean by that? Um, they can do things <coughs> that they can't do in the store. Well, consumers, consumers and their banks. So the consumer has a relationship with the bank, the issuing bank, and the bank, of course, wants to keep these consumers happy. And sometimes a a consumer will overspend, or he'll have buyer's remorse. Most everyone listening to this. If you've bought a car, a house, uh, a trinket, whatever, when you look at it, bring it home, you always think, did I pay too much, did I pay too little? Well, you introduce the Internet, and now it becomes very, very apparent to someone who's bought something that maybe they could have saved some money, or maybe they overspent on the Internet, because people forget their buying experience on the Internet. It's not like they're getting in a vehicle, driving to three stores. What, what used to take someone two hours to do in three stores, now that same individual, the consumer, can shop dozens and dozens of stores in the same two-hour period without getting out of their chair. So they begin to forget about the stores they visited, and in fact, they forget about the stores they actually acquired products from. So merchants have to go above and beyond in their quality assurance and their tracking and their emails and their communication to the consumers so that these consumers understand that these are real merchants, they they have real human beings behind them, and that you can't just call your bank up at two months after you purchased a pair of shoes or a T-shirt or a dress, used it, and then call the bank and say, gosh, you know, um, this product wasn't, the way it was described, and I think this is a fraudulent transaction, um, and they file a chargeback. A chargeback is an irreversible event against the merchant. He pays a fee. He loses the cost of sales. He loses his shipping and handling. He loses all his advertising costs, and that's called a chargeback, where they unilaterally pull the money out of the merchant's bank account and and then the consumer gets his money back, and everyone's happy except for the merchant. Well, so what does your company do? What we do is we provide a very timely – when we survey consumers and we ask them, why did you call your bank and file a chargeback versus calling the merchant? Most consumers say they've had bad experiences calling customer service at merchant. Right, they they have long hold times, or people aren't available twenty four seven. So what we did was we filled in that gap, and we provide a very easy, fairly balanced mediation service between the consumer and the bank and the merchant, so that all the players are happy. The banks can't handle all these increased phone calls. The Internet is absolutely exploding in transactions, and it's still in its infancy, in reality. It's only 15 years old. It's an adolescent. So we are now beginning to get a tremendous amount of traction. Consumers who bought on the Internet last year 
are more and more comfortable to buy this year, and that will only continue to escalate. The problem with it is is that many of the banks and many of the merchants do not have the scale or the ability 24-7 to answer the phone for all these inquiries and disputes and questions and, hey, I want a refund. So what the consumer tends to do is call the bank, his bank, the bank that you know he pays fees to every month, who might have his mortgage, and he says, I want to unwind this transaction. I don't like it anymore. The guy won't answer the phone or it's a fraudulent transaction. And they use a, many reasons to reverse the, the trade. They, are, they think they're getting a refund, but in reality, it's a negative effect to the merchant himself. The merchant pays a fee for this so-called refund, which is really technically a chargeback per Visa, MasterCard, and American Express. So what we have done is we fill the gap by being available for those consumers. For those consumers, instead of calling their banks and filing a chargeback, which may in effect harm their credit in the future for habitual chargeback offenders, we take those phone calls and mediate the process so that everyone is happy in that exchange. Well, how, but how does the consumer know to call you? Well, uh, we are we are releasing more and more data about what we do as a company, and we are aligning ourselves with many uh, large and medium-sized merchants to fill this role for them. Well, but, because it's a real okay. scale, it's a real scaling problem for many merchants. If I a understand merchant, that. Go ahead. But, but, um, I, I buy something from Merchant X, who's your client. Yes. Um, I decide I don't like the product. And uh, unlike me, uh, uh, unlike m- many consumers, I usually call back the uh, store. But but instead of doing that, I call the bank and say I want to charge back. Before, How do you get, can, get that, that consumer to call you before calling the bank? Yeah, so it's it's very simple. What we do is we align ourselves with the merchant themselves to provide this function on behalf of the merchant and or we will align ourselves with your issuing bank, the bank that you would call in the event you couldn't get a hold of your customer service at the merchant, right? If for any reason you can't get a hold of the merchant, you can then call your issuing bank. The issuing bank would then forward that phone call over to us or the merchant would have his phone calls directed to us. Okay, so it's transparent to the consumer. Oh, I, absolutely, I call, yes, sir. Oh, okay. That, that's the part I didn't understand. So um, I, I, I call them American Express. I said I want to charge back. They say, okay, well, wait a second, Mr. Mazzella. They send a charge back to Merchant X, and, and they know that you are now using their, their service. <coughs> service and they they redirect the call to you and you handle it that's right and, and, and in your example instead of filing the chargeback what would happen is that that phone call the consumer would be directed to us through it's a very easy link uh electronic link the 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 consumer would be pushed over to us and we would handle that 365 days a year 24 7 and hopefully with less waiting time. With with virtually no waiting time. Because when you survey these consumers, one thing they complain about is hold, long hold times. See, this oh, is man. our point. 
this is our point about the internet. The internet is crushing attention spans. Crushing attention spans. You you are allowing consumers to do things at such hyper velocity. Never before on this planet has you've been able to shop at such high velocity. We've even termed something called immersion buying, where consumers are buying in such spiky periods, very very compressed time periods. They're buying large amounts of different items, and they forget what they're doing because this isn't them walking from store to store, driving from store to store. This is jumping from one part of the planet to another, i.e. merchants, between merchants, with the click of a finger. So what these people don't want to do is wait for a long time and not get a resolution. They want clean and clear resolutions. They want a refund. That's all they're really trying to accomplish. Now, it's only fair if a refund shows up or a request for a refund shows up that the merchant is also allowed to get his product back. But we are seeing some really bizarre behaviors occur on the Internet that does not occur in stores, which is consumers filing chargebacks Looking for the using the using the chargeback as a refund mechanism, and still keeping the product. So now, how do you handle that? Other, that in any store would be called shoplifting. Right. Right. So now what we what we look at that is say, look, there's a percentage of these people that are actually doing cyber shoplifting, which is a crime. So consumers need to be really careful of how they use the chargeback process to effectuate a refund. And we're trying, through our business model, we're trying to make it very easy for consumers to obtain satisfaction of their purchases online. But do you then say to the uh, consumer, you must also return the product? Could you ask that question again, please? Uh, but you're saying to the consumer, yes, you, you're, you're deserving of a refund, but you have to return the product. Well, of course. I mean, you 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 buy a iPad, and uh, you know you you really, I mean, products aren't sold for free; they're sold for a price. So if you buy an iPad, you can't just keep the iPad and expect a full refund. I mean, that's not no no business in the world could could function under those rules. Uh, having said that, having said that, a, a scary percentage of these chargebacks are resulting in consumers retaining the product and obtaining a refund, and it is yeah. very damaging to the to the merchant, and it's also very damaging to the good consumers who do not arbitrage this this uh, payment processing event called the chargeback dispute process. Uh, but it, it's very painful for the good consumers who pay their bills and their responsible buyers. The other thing that some of these habitual chargeback offenders need to be very careful of is that many merchants are beginning to keep lists on these consumers who use the dispute process, the chargeback dispute process. People are, Merchants are beginning to keep lists, and we believe that it is only a matter of time before issuing banks that is, the SunTrust, the Bank of Americas of the world that, that give consumers credit cards, that they, too, will begin watching consumers who overuse the chargeback process. See, what really just needs to happen is we get, we get back to good old ethics where 
A consumer buys something, he's responsible for paying for it. If he uses it, he's responsible for paying for it. And if the merchant sells something and he has a refund policy, that the consumer and the merchant are operating under good faith, uh, good faith efforts, and that everyone is being ethical in the transaction process so that the market is a healthy market for everyone. I couldn't agree agree with you more, but you you, you surfaced something I I hadn't realized, and that's why you're on this program. Um, If if our audience wants to utilize your service, how do they contact you or your company? Well, they can easily search for me, Gary Cardone at ECS or eConsumer Services. That's very easy. and we're the only company named eConsumer Services, so that will be quite easy. eConsumerServices.com. Uh, I'm Gary Cardone, the president of the company, um, and we'll make sure that our team, whether it's customer-driven, consumer-driven, or merchant-driven, or issuing bank-driven, is um, made available to answer any and all questions. Well, I tell you, Gary, uh, I want you to come back in the new year, and I'm going to repeat this program. Because I, I think this is uh, 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 this is a fascinating subject that uh, our audience should know about, and and should uh, we should repeat this program because uh, uh, December is not our highest uh, audience time, but uh, we've been at it a long time. But I want you back in the new year to to talk again because I th- particularly I guess you, uh, you, uh, high period is is this coming January when uh, uh, the returns really start to flock in. Yeah, that's right. January and February, we're going to begin to see that the numbers are going to be really interesting as to how much of this is consumer-driven fraud, how much of it's merchant uh, mistakes, merchant errors. And, And those are the things that we're trying to facilitate and fixing is the Internet is such a new environment that we're all learning as we go, consumers and merchants, and in fact the banks, we're all learning. And uh, in four years, every person on this planet is going to be connected to the Internet. That's about seven and a half to eight billion shoppers and eight billion sellers. So we have to really do everything we can to get our act together so this is a healthy, safe, predictable marketplace. Well, uh, Gary, Thank you so much for being on the program tonight. Uh, I know it was short notice, but uh, this is one of the best stories I've, I've heard in a long time. Thank oh, you well, thank so you, much. John. Really appreciate it. Uh, have, have a good and a prosperous new year. Thank you very much, sir. Good night. We won't be on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, but we'll be back in January with some more interesting tales and guests to help you Have a happy and prosperous 2015. Thank you, and good night. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture.
Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you'd like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.